This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God and worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. I want to invite you, if you will, to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. So there in the Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter 8. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there's a hardback edition of the Bible located in the pocket of each chair, uh, just there on the back. So please feel free to make use of that. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. As you're turning there, uh, I want to do two things. One, to give you an update on Emma, and the second, just to set the context a bit for what we'll be reading. Emma did finish the trial on the communications device. Um, it was a learning process, as most things are in life. Emma has done very well in communicating with saying yes or no like this. So this was a little different as she was learning to move through menus on a, a computer screen and hearing the voice. So, you know, some days were better than others. So right now we're just in the process of waiting to speak and hear the evaluative comments of the therapist. So we'll just see what the Lord does. That's what we've been doing through this whole journey. And uh, it'll work out one way or another. It will be okay. We're convinced of that. Second thing is to tell you a little bit about what we're about to read. The book of Nehemiah was written approximately 400 years before Jesus was born. Nehemiah was a governor. but Don't let that scare you. He was a good man. And he had gathered to lead Jerusalem in rebuilding their walls. You see, in the conflicts that had taken place within the, the nation of Judah, Babylon had come in and absolutely demolished the city. And Nehemiah was shocked by this. So God had granted him favor with the king to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Now that task had been finished, but the walls were only a picture outside of what needed to take place inside. See, the residents of Jerusalem had really been beaten up by life. and A lot of it was their own fault. They had rejected God. So not only did the walls need to be rebuilt, revival needed to occur among the people. That's why one of Nehemiah's contemporaries, a priest by the name of Ezra, had gathered the people together to read the Torah. What we know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What happened was amazing. The people stood on their feet for hours hearing the word of God read. And when they heard it, their hearts were broken because they realized they had They'd sinned against God. They hadn't followed what God wanted. And that's where we pick up. Verse 9 of chapter 8. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. May God be glorified in the reading and hearing of his word this morning. 
One of my favorite stories by the author and preacher Max Lucado is the story of Chippy the Parakeet. Lucano came across it in an afternoon story in the life section of the San Antonio newspaper, and he always held on to it. See, Chippy was a parakeet. He was just minding his own business and joining life when one day before he knew it, he had been sucked in, washed up, and blown over. You see, Chippy's owner decided that it was time to clean Chippy's cage. So the best way she figured to do that was to use the attachment on her vacuum cleaner, and that's what she started doing. She stuck the vacuum cleaner with its nozzle in Chippy's cage and started sucking up all the stuff there on the bottom of the cage when the phone rang. And as she turned to answer the phone, her hand with the nozzle went up toward Chippy, and sure enough, whoop, there went Chippy. When she turned around, she realized what had happened, and immediately she tore open the vacuum cleaner, tore open the bag, and there was Chippy sitting covered with dust. Well, like any good bird owner would do, she figured Chippy needed to be cleaned up. So she grabbed Chippy, ran to the sink, turned on the faucet, and stuck him under the water and washed him off. Then realizing that this was not a very happy bird, she decided to do, well, once again, what any good bird owner would do. She got out the hairdryer. And began to dry Chippy off. Chippy was stunned but alive. When asked how Chippy was doing by the reporter who came across this story from a friend of a friend. The owner replied, well, Chippy doesn't sing anymore. He just kind of sits and stares. I think many of us can empathize with Chippy. Life has sucked us in, washed us over and blown us up. We don't have much of a song anymore. Life will test us. Sometimes that test is not to let life and the struggles rob us of our joy. Which brings me to this question. Where can we find strength to endure? I mean, let's face it, we all, we all encounter troubles, difficulties, challenges. There's no problem-free life. And anybody who tries to sell you that is lying. So where do we find the strength to, to press on? To endure? To not let life get the best of us? To simply not quit? Some of us will say, well, you look to your inner strength, your inner person. You, you look inward to find the resources in your heart to press on. But at some point, our inner strength will give out. My father was a civil engineer by trained, and I can remember when I was 10 or 11, I walked into his bedroom where he had a drafting table and he was working. And now this was old school. This was before computers. So dad had books out, a scientific calculator, a slide rule, and was doing his thing. And then I just walked up and said, Dad, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm figuring out how many cubic feet of cement we need to hold up this bridge. Oh, okay. What I understood later is this, that concrete, even though as strong as it is, has a limit on what it can support. So do our lives. There are things we encounter that are beyond our capacity to bear. And if our only strength is found within self, we will find that strength lacking at some point. There are some say, look to your anger. Get mad at life. 
That's how you, you survive. You get this hard shell. You don't let anybody in. That's how you survive. But I would tell you that anger is a double-edged sword. It may strengthen you, but at the same time, it will destroy you. And it will kill others in the process. Some will say strength is found in family and friends. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that at all. We need friends and family, but we run into the same issue with the concrete. There's a limit in what they can do. That's why Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 9 through 12 point us to a very surprising source of strength. This is a source of strength that will never run out. Oil fields may be tapped and gone one day. Even the sun will burn out one day and no longer give energy. But this source of strength and energy will never give way. We see it there at the end of verse 10. Do not be grieved. Why should we not be grieved? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now understand, we have to understand why they are grieved. You see, it's very clear the people were, were mourning. In fact, in verse 9, when Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites speak, they say, don't mourn or weep. Now, although life at times gives us reason to mourn and weep, the specific circumstance here was they realized that they were not obeying God. More than likely, this was not the first time they had heard the Torah read. But at this point in time, the words of the Torah thundered and struck them like lightning. They were guilty. There was no denying it. They hadn't lived up to God's expectations. And the natural and right response to their failure before God was grief. They mourned. They wept. Now, it's easy to expect Nehemiah and Ezra to encourage such profound grief. After all, that's the stereotypical view of preachers, isn't it? You should weep, you sinners! That's what we would expect. So that's what any preacher worth his salt would do. But they don't do that. In fact, they do the opposite. They encourage the people to celebrate. Look at verse 10. Go your way. In other words, go home. Eat the fat. You know what that's saying? Get you a big old steak. Go and enjoy. Drink sweet wine. I'm not going to touch that as a Southern Baptist preacher. Go and celebrate. Go and enjoy life. This is a holy day. And you see that repeated in this. This day is holy unto the Lord. Verse 10, this day is holy to the Lord. Verse 11, this day is holy. That means it's set apart for God. But the celebration he's talking about here is not something we think of with a holy day. Certainly not in the Old Testament. We think of a holy day as a day where you dress in black and, and clothe your face with dour looks. Now, there are holy days in the Old Testament that call for repentance and solemnness. But the truth is that the overlooked emphasis in most of the feast is celebration, remembering. The feasts call people to come together with family and friends to celebrate what God has done. In fact, it says in verse 12, they went their way making great rejoicing. Why? Because they'd understood the words that were declared. 
to them. That's why we celebrate holy days. In fact, the word holiday comes from holy day. Christmas is set aside as a holy day to celebrate. And in the words of Ezra and Nehemiah to the people not to weep, we find a little bit of a warning to us. The warning is this. A legalistic, pharisaical approach to life will not give joy. Because you're always setting this standard you can never attain and others can never attain. I'm coming to appreciate the writings of a late a preacher who has passed away many years ago by the name of Vance, Vance Havner. If you're not familiar with Vance Havner, that's okay. He's not as well known as many other speakers, but he had a wit and witticisms that, that still today encourage people who read them. He grew up in western North Carolina in Jugtown. That's right, Jugtown, North Carolina. He said from his back porch he could see Grandfather Mountain. He wrote in one of his books, too much of our orthodoxy is correct and sound, but it's like words without a tune. It does not glow and burn. It does not stir the heart. It's lost its hallelujah. One man with a genuine glowing experience with God is worth a library full of arguments. You see, the point of the law was not just rules and regulations. The point of the law was to see God and to know His grace. The point of the law was to drive us to this realization that you and I fall short of what God desires for us. Therefore, we need the grace of God. So that's why the feasts and the festivals were given, to point to the grace of God and to remember the grace of God in delivering his people from sin and slavery. The law and the regulations point to one thing, the grace of God in forgiving his people. And that's the reason for our celebration. God has given us reason for joy because God gives his grace freely. And grace begets joy in the life of a believer just as the sun begets warmth. That's why joy is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Because once you've experienced the freedom of God's grace that says you are loved and you are forgiven, you will have a joy that the world cannot take away or touch. Recently came across the story of Lee and Dennis Horton. There were two brothers arrested in 1993, arrested and convicted of armed robbery and murder. The two brothers were sentenced to life without parole. But they always maintained their innocence. And in 2021, after being locked up for 28 years, they were granted clemency. And released. Lee Horton tells, gives testimony of his imprisonment and release when he says, I'm going to tell you honestly, the first thing I was aware of when I walked out of the doors and sat in the car and realized that I wasn't handcuffed. For all the time, he says, I'd been in prison. Every time I was transported anywhere, I always had handcuffs on. And in that moment right there, that was the most emotional moment I had. Even when they told me the governor had signed the papers, it didn't sit in until I sat in that car with no handcuffs. Lee continues, I don't think people understand that the punishment is being in prison 
When you take away everything, everything becomes beautiful. When we got out, we went to the DMV. We went there to get our licenses back. My brother and I stood in line for two and a half hours. Lee says, now my brother and I heard all the bad things about the DMV. But then he smiles and he says, but we had the most beautiful time. All the people were looking at us because we were smiling and we were laughing. And they just couldn't understand. They didn't know why we were so happy. And it was just that. Because being in line was a beautiful thing. I was aware of everything around me. And in my mind, it was heightened. Every small nuance was beautiful. And I thanked God for it. People don't understand the joy of freedom because they don't know what it's like to be deprived of freedom. And now it's like I've been released. I've been reborn into a better day, into a new day. Like the person I was no longer exists. I've stepped through the looking glass onto the other side and everything is beautiful. His word should be the testimony of every believer. We see the beauty of God's creation because we have been set free. Where sin imprisoned us, the grace of God threw the doors open. Where we were handcuffed by our own rebellion against God. He tore those handcuffs off and he said you are no longer a prisoner you are my child come on in and enjoy the grace that I give freely that is joy and you understand that when we joy in God's grace when we rejoice in what God has done that gives God joy if it is possible for an infinitely joyful being to increase in joy God's joy is magnified when his children enjoy the grace he has given this is why now think about our experience okay one week from today is Christmas Eve then there is Christmas morning think about okay we know the joy of children opening presents but think about the joy the giver has when you give someone a gift and they open it and they're excited for it, are you mad? Are you upset? To the contrary, when someone opens a gift you have given them, you're joyful. And especially when they say, that's just what I need. Because isn't that the question we ask? I don't care what they want. What do they need? God gives us grace that we need. And when we open that gift, God's joy increases if that's possible. And it's that joy, the joy of God's grace that gives us strength. Now, the word strength there in verse 10 is a very unique word. Technically, it doesn't refer to human strength. It's a word that means fortress, stronghold. Now, think of it like that. For the joy of the Lord is your stronghold. The joy of the Lord is your fortress. The joy of the Lord is your strong tower. This gives us insight into how grace gives us strength. The grace of God is our salvation. Once God has given his grace, he does not remove it. Once we are adopted into his family, that adoption is irrevocable. So we understand the strength God gives that we can say, no matter how bad circumstances are, no matter how bad I have failed, God still holds me in his hand. That's a reason for joy. Another way, reason that joy is our stronghold is that it gives comfort. The grace of God says, 
I have begun a good work in you and I will see it through to the day of completion. I have given up trying to figure out the whys of life. At some point we have to recognize that our limited minds will not grasp the infinite plan of God in things. But what I do rely on and take comfort in is this, that God is good and he is gracious. And I will take comfort in that. The grace of God is our hope. I just quoted a moment ago Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion. I find hope in the grace of God because God does not stop. Do not discount what God is doing. And the grace of God gives strength. When Paul was stricken with some thorn in the flesh and he, he sought God three times saying, Lord, remove it. Lord, remove it. Lord, remove it. And each time God said no. But God answered with this, my grace is sufficient. God's grace is our joy because he will grant what we need for the moment. Joy is not the absence of conflict or trouble. If you're thinking that my joy will come when all troubles cease, you'll be dead. Joy is not the absence of conflict, but it's well-being in the midst of it. Now, I think one of the most common misconceptions we have is the idea that if you acknowledge bad things or grief, you're in some way sinning against God. Joy does not ignore grief. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for all things. Jesus himself wept. He grieved. Joy is not just an emotion. It's a state of being. Okay, so even as I grieve, I want to move forward in saying, God, grant me grace. So how do we have such joy in the midst of trouble, when we've got to make a choice in what we're going to focus on. We've got to make a choice. And this is not just a one-time choice. This is a repeated choice. In fact, in verse 9, when Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites say, do not mourn, the verb there, do not mourn, means this continual, continual emphasis. In other words, it's not a one-time decision. It's continual. So even in the midst of my grief, I'm going to say, Lord, I need to focus on your grace. Someone once said in regard to sailing on a boat, it's not the direction of the wind that makes the difference. It's the set of the sail. What direction will you go in life? Now, I know for others, because of temperament, it's easier to, to choose a joyful attitude. Some are born pessimist. Some optimist and some somewhere in between. They call themselves realist. You know, it's kind of like the difference. You have the glass that's filled halfway up with water. We always heard the optimist say, well, it's half full. The pessimist is half empty. And the realist says, well, it doesn't matter. It's going to get spilled anyway. It's the choice to say that I am not going to allow my thinking to drift into negative areas. Now, I'm not preaching the power of positive thinking. Understand that. What I am preaching is focusing on Jesus. Letting him fill your thoughts. You see, we have a choice to make in where we place our thinking. 
Martin Luther once said, you can't help it if a bird flies over your head, but you can prevent it from building a nest in your hair. We may have thoughts that come, but that doesn't mean those thoughts are where we should linger. I'm really convinced more and more this is part of spiritual warfare. Because the devil and our flesh wants us to continually roll over in our minds the bad things that have happened. The bad things that have happened. Instead of starting to think God is going to work redemptively. That's the hope of grace. That there's no situation in which God cannot bring redemption. So, choice. Second thing I would tell you is this. Share the celebration. And this is where other people come in. Do you notice that this is not an individual thing? Look at, look at what he says in verse 10. Okay, don't weep or mourn. Go home, eat the fat, drink the sweet, sweet wine. And look, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Share. Share your joy. Share it. We should be open to sharing not just the troubles of life, but our joys. We should have a contagious joy about us that is attractive. I remember hearing Tony Campolo tell a story of when he was walking in downtown Philadelphia one day. And he was met by a homeless person coming across the street carrying a styrofoam cup. He said, I hope there was coffee in it, but I'm not sure. And he said, this, this homeless man got to the other side, stood right in front of me, looked and said, it's a beautiful morning and the coffee is good. You want a sip? Campolo said, what do you do at that moment? He said, I took the cup and I took a sip. Because when something's that good and offered and joyous, you share it. Now, I'm not recommending that, by the way. But the point is this. This homeless person had something good. And he wanted to share it. We should share the joy we have. The ups and downs. Of, that's part of community. And I can tell you that's exactly what we need. In a world that seems more connected technologically than at any other point in history. How come we feel so distant? Perhaps more so than any point in history. Because communication is not the same as community. Sharing our lives. The ups, downs, the victories, and the joy. And then develop. This is the third thing I would encourage you to do. And this is not, nothing new. Develop the disciplines of looking to the Lord and receiving grace. The disciplines of the Christian life. Discipline sounds like a harsh word. But they're ways of life. Praying. Reading the word. Worship. Once again, this is nothing new. These are things that remind us of the grace of God. When we come in here together, we are reminded of God's grace and community. It reminds us to look up. I am a fan, and if you've sat under my preaching any amount of time, you know that I am a big fan of the... Lord of the Rings trilogy written by J.R.R. Tolkien. Because Tolkien was a genius, a true genius. And although the, book is, the books are not exactly allegories, he weaves into them gospel motifs and imagery. I would argue with some people that the true hero of the story is not Frodo, but Samwise, his friend, who stood beside him all the way now, if you're not familiar with the story of the Lord of the Rings, just bear with me. Those of you who are familiar with it, I hope this will resonate. In the return of the king, Sam and Frodo are deep in the land of Mordor. Mordor is evil. 
continual darkness. Clouds cover the sky. It's, it's a wasteland. And they are there to destroy the one ring and set people free. In one of the dark moments in the tale, Sam looks up into the poisonous skies of Mordor. And he's teetering on the verge of hopelessness. Tolkien writes, There peeping among the cloud rack above the dark high in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Look up. There is light and there is reason for joy. I hope that joy is your strength today. The joy of the grace of God. I want to invite you to please bow your heads with me if you will. In just a moment, we will stand and we will sing just a song of response to the Lord. And in that time, if you want to come and pray, maybe you've been going through a difficult time and the truth of the matter is that your joy is gone. Your heart has felt empty and you just want to come and pray here at the kneeling benches. These are open for you to do that. And believe me, no one is looking down or making judgment because all of us have been there. Many of us are still there. I'll be here at the front if you want me to pray with you or even following the service. But this morning as we think about joy, I pray that we will know the joy of God's grace. Father, thank you for giving your grace richly and abundantly. And Lord, I thank you for the joy that accompanies it. Father, I pray for us who feel like we are lacking joy and I pray that we will be reminded this morning of your grace. And Father, I pray most of all for the one who thinks they're above your grace. That's thinking they just need to, to make a little more money, get a better job, then that will give them joy. Father, I pray that you would show them that true joy is not found in material things or in position, but in your love. Grant this, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.